So today, we are talking about spiritual authority, learning how to grow as people who understand what spiritual authority is all about. For those of you who are here in church for the first time and think, what on earth is all this about? Um, It comes from a series based on Ezekiel chapter 1, where there are four beings, and each of them have four faces. And we understand this vision from Ezekiel as being, as describing something of mature Christianity. When Christians become fully developed in their identity in God, there are four different attributes that you see in the life of a Christian, represented by these four faces. So we've already looked at the, the man face, the human face. We've already looked at the eagle face, which is prophetic spirituality. We're now looking at the lion face, which is about spiritual authority. And then next week, Phil's going to round off the series by looking at the ox face, that stubborn, hard work of a believer. So, the lion face, symbol of kingly authority and power. We need to explore this spiritual authority. We need to understand where it comes from, and we need to understand what it's for. Now, there may be some of you here in the room, maybe a lot of you, I don't know, who recoil a little bit when you hear the word authority. For some of us, it feels like a bit of a dirty word because we've had bad experiences with people in authority. Hands up if you've had a a bad experience with somebody in authority in the past where someone has abused their position and you've paid the price for it. It happens, and it happens a lot. I remember when I was a 15-year-old lad, um, I had a job on a market store. I used to work on the fruit and veg store um, in Tewkesbury Market, and it involved getting up very, very early, especially for a 15-year-old lad. I had to be there at 6 a.m., uh, and the first thing we'd do is unload this thumping great big lorry of all this fruit and veg and set up the store. Uh, it had to be ready up and running for about 7.30, 8 o'clock when people started to come. So it was straight, as soon as I got there, the truck was already there, everything offloaded, everything done. And then there was a little bit of a lull before the market really started to pick up. And then it was just steady throughout the day. And I was the spud carrier. Yeah, so spuds, carrots, uh, sprouts, whatever. I was the guy that shouldered those and put them in people's cars for them. That was my job. I never got to sell anything. I never got to do hardly anything other than just carry stuff, uh, unload a truck, carry stuff, and then load it back on again. That's all I got to do. And I started this job in the summer, and I remember it went right through the autumn. So it went from very, being kind of hot, dusty days in the market to then being freezing days and days uh, where, where the rain comes in cold and everything. And I, but I, w- I was getting quite beefy doing this. And when you're a 15-year-old lad, that's quite a bonus. I thought I'm getting paid for a workout. <laughs> this, is, this is good. I'm putting on a bit of brawn. And I like that. But do you know what? My boss was called Billy Bunghole. And I still don't know why they called him that. I'll let you imagine. No idea. But anyway, Billy was about this tall, and he was wider than he was tall, I swear. He was massive. He was a little ox of a man. He had short, ginger, curly hair, and he was huge, and everybody was afraid of him. The whole market knew about Billy. You didn't cross him. You didn't mess about. He would 
put you down all day long. He would shout stuff. Uh, he, you know, he, he, he'd shove you. He was quite aggressive. And he made you understand that he was the king of the market. So this was my boss, right? Anyway, uh, I didn't particularly like him. I tried not to get in his way. I tried to do as I was told. And uh, I appreciated the 50 quid in the end of my pocket at the end of the day. And what happened was, when, when you got paid, um, there was this moment where everyone seemed to know when it was. I often half missed it. But when, when people would go to the cab, and Billy would take out this thumping great roll of notes, and he would give people their wages. And so I oh, neck, it's wages time, I'd go over. And he'd give me my money, and then he'd say, right, right, see you next week. That was it, done. I was off home, knackered. Anyway. I remember I worked up until the one just before Christmas, and this is the busiest one of the year. Uh, I don't know how many sacks of potatoes and sprouts and carrots and everything that I shifted that day, but it was a serious amount of work, and I just did not stop from about seven in the morning until about half past three in the afternoon. I was shifting sacks, and I was shattered. I remember all day long that day, the team that was there, there's about five or six others on the store, were, were saying, hey, it's great today because it's the Christmas one we always get a Christmas bonus so we get double time today and I'm thinking come on 100 quid just before Christmas and I'm 15 and they, they were t- telling me this all day long and then having a little laugh amongst themselves and when I went to the cab to get my cash Billy looked me in the eye he says no I'm not paying you today you can f off he had decided that he was going to let me go that day because he knew that in January, February, there was a lull. And less people brought their fruit and veg at that time of year. And he knew he didn't want to keep me on. So he decided to use me for all the heavy lifting that day and tell me to get lost. And I remember saying, no, I'm not going anywhere until I've got my money. And he just squared up to me. And he just told me to get lost. He said, you know, we're finished with you now. You can go. Uh, we said it in different terms to that. But there you go. And while he was saying this, the rest of the team were killing themselves laughing, watching as I, I had no, nothing to do, no, no way of responding. And I just had to walk away. And uh, that was one of my early experiences of authority. Someone that had the power to do whatever they liked and they knew not a soul was going to challenge them because they had authority within that, that sphere. Something in me said, that's not right. As a 15-year-old lad, that's to put it mildly. I asked my dad to go and get my money back. He wasn't up for that. So just to be absolutely clear, when we start talking about spiritual authority, it has absolutely nothing to do with that kind of authority that people wield. None whatsoever. Jesus said to his followers, you are not to lord it over people. You are not to coerce. You are not to manipulate. You are not to dominate. You are not to try and control people. That's what the world seeks to do. And we can hear this for ourselves. You, he said to his followers, you, church family, you are going to be the servants of all. You are going to carry tremendous power but you are going to temper it with love and service to God and his loving purposes for creation. And to illustrate that, he washed their feet. 
So the authority of God is absolute. He possesses unimaginable power. And it is expressed 100% in harmony with his gracious, self-sacrificing love for all things. Do we understand that? Son of God, by his authority, destroyed the powers and the principalities of wickedness and control on the cross. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over every false power, every dictator, every abusive parent, every sadistic schoolteacher, every spiteful boss, or any form of sinful use of authority. Jesus took all of that sinful, selfish abuse of power and position, and he bore it in his body and dragged it down to hell and disarmed it, and he rose with a new life and a new kind of authority available to all who believe. Do you believe that? Romans 5.17. You probably all know it off by heart. You can say it with me if you like. For by the transgression of one, I'll say it on my own. For by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. I'm going to repeat it for you. For by the transgression of the one, that is Adam, death reigned through the one. How much more, much more, Will those who receive, who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, they will reign in life. When? In this life. How? Through the one Jesus Christ. We are born to rule and reign when we are born again into the kingdom of Jesus. I could stop there because that, all I have to say this morning is just an exploration of this verse. God intends for those who have been made right with him to have dominion and authority in the heavenly realms and to a large extent the natural realm also. Authority can be defined as the power or the right to give orders, to make decisions, or to enforce obedience. We have been given authority to enforce obedience in the heavenly realm. In fact, we've been given tremendous authority to rule and reign in every realm. And you know what? Most Christians, myself included, don't even begin to understand what their authority is in Christ. In the same way that Pauline spoke last, last week about Goldie the Eagle, about how this eagle escaped from the zoo and didn't understand the full breadth of what an eagle was supposed to be and do, so ended up sort of bobbing around more like a pigeon than an eagle. I think that's how a lot of us are, both with our, our prophetic spirituality and with our spiritual authority. God intends us to understand and to use the authority that has been delegated to us and not for, to make sure that it doesn't remain a foreign concept. And... Uh, Though I would say most Christians don't understand this, that's not really a, cri a criticism against Christians. It's more of a wake-up call to the church. Because it's, not, it's only by learning in an environment where the authority of God is brought to bear that we ourselves learn how to operate under the authority that comes from Jesus. 
So if the church isn't walking in the authority of God, how am I going to learn to do that? It's not easy, is it? How much authority do you feel that Jesus' disciples had before they'd spent three years watching Jesus? Very little, if any at all. How do I know that? Because every time Jesus moved in authority, they were amazed. When Jesus spoke to the storm and the wind and the waves died down, they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And actually, do you know what? That's the best question we can ask. Who is this? That's where spiritual authority begins, to understand who is this Jesus, that at his word, everything seems to change because he has dominion over the realm, the spiritual realm and the natural realm. He is instantly obeyed without question or exception. If we're going to understand spiritual authority, the, 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 the authority that we've been given by God, we too must first have a revelation about who Jesus really is and the authority that he, he possesses. He is the one who declared after he rose from the dead that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's also the one that said, I will be with you and I will be in you. Therefore, now go and transform the nations. All authority in heaven and on earth is being given to Jesus and Jesus is in us and with us. We have authority to the extent to which we're abiding in Christ and receiving his word over situations. His word, not my word. Do you know what? When I speak, not a lot happens. When you speak, not a lot happens. You might have a little bit of personal authority. You might have a little bit of counterfeit authority like Billy did on the market store. But you know what? When we speak, very little really happens. Very little of kingdom value, of eternal value. But you know what? When Jesus speaks, something always happens. Something always moves. The Lord watches over his word to perform it, and he moves in power. So when we speak the word of God, things should happen. All of us. When we speak out the word of God with faith and we claim the promises of God, or we speak something we hear the Holy Spirit is speaking, we speak it into a situation, we should all be able to expect that something is going to shift. And you know what? That was what was so different about Jesus' ministry. When Jesus spoke, something always happened. There was always, every single time, an impact from his words. Atmospheres shifted. People got convicted of sin and made amends with their communities. Demons came out of people and sicknesses and infirmity just flew out of the door. Jesus' words were so powerful and effective and the people in the Gospels loved it. The Bible says that when Jesus had finished speaking that the people were amazed. The Greek word there is ek pleso. Ek meaning out of and pleso meaning mind. They were blown out of their minds by seeing every word that came from Jesus' mouth had an impact. It made a difference. So everything shifted when you heard Jesus begin to speak. And so it was addictive. People just wanted to follow Jesus. They just wanted to hear something else that he was going to say because they, want, they loved watching the room change as he was speaking. I want to know more about that, don't you? I want to see the word of God have such a powerful impact that I just get more and more and more addicted to it. Amen. That I just can't get enough of hearing the Lord speak powerfully through his servants. 
It wasn't just his followers that marveled at his authority. His opponents really didn't know what to do with it either. In Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27, the chief priests had had enough. They had to know what this authority was about that Jesus was using all the time. And so they challenged him. It says this, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, okay, I'll ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. And he said, the baptism of John, was it from God or was it from men? Well, they uh, went and had a little meeting by themselves. How are we going to get out of this one? This is what Jews do, that rabbis do. They kind of... Uh, challenge each other with conundrums and questions. Anyway, so they went and uh, these chief priests and these rabbis, they were kind of, what are we going to do? If we say that, it's, that John's baptism was from heaven, they're going to say, well, then why didn't you listen and believe him? If we say it was from men, then they're going to stone us. So they come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know. And Jesus said, then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Love that. Why wouldn't Jesus reveal his authority to these men? Two reasons. Number one, they weren't willing to take a stand of faith and say, yes, I believe what John was doing was authorized by God. And they were more concerned about public opinion and their reputation before the people than what was actually true and what was actually from God. What does that tell us? We are never going to understand the authority to do the things that Jesus did if we are either unwilling to take a stand for what we believe or if we're worried about what people think more than we're worried about what God thinks in any situation. Those are two things that are going to prevent us from understanding by what authority Jesus operates and what authority we carry. Are you with me? Those who acknowledged and believed what God was clearly saying through John's message and doing through Jesus' ministry were given more understanding and training. Jesus invested in them. He shared unimaginable things with them about the power of the kingdom of God. Those who were not prepared to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and were more concerned about their own reputations and opinions were given nothing as far as understanding of our own authority in Christ. So in contrast to that, there is one group in the scriptures that seem to get it. They just seem to understand the authority that Jesus is operating in really easily indeed. And they are called centurions. Centurions are such interesting characters in the New Testament. One might expect that they would be depicted in negative terms, given that they were part of the despised occupying force of Rome in Israel. And they were a rank that was not high enough in the chain of command to be distant from the people. They were actually down at the level of the normal people, working with communities, working on, on a, the, the normal everyday level of Jewish life. So one would have imagined that this Jewish book would portray them uh, as, in a really negative light as oppressors. And yet nearly every time centurions are mentioned in the New Testament, it is in a positive and inspirational way. That's amazing, isn't it? Do you not find that interesting? So towards the end of Paul's life, 
there is the centurions that help and protect him again and again and again, protect him from the mob. They put him under house arrest, but they give him this incredible freedom to be able to come and go as he likes. Um, they make sure he's got every need met. At the cross, it was a centurion that witnessed the earthquake and saw everything that was happening and proclaimed unashamedly that truly this was the Son of God. That's incredible. That's tantamount to treason if you're a centurion. You can get strung up for that. In Acts 10, when by a miracle Peter was led to go to the home of a Gentile called Cornelius, he turned out to be a centurion. And he was spoken of incredibly highly as a godly man and one who heard God's voice and had encounters with angels. So let's see what we can learn from another centurion. Turn to Luke and chapter 7. And I hope you like history. Because we're going to do a bit of that as well. So here in Luke chapter 7, we meet a centurion that is highly regarded by his community. You can also find him in Matthew chapter 8. So this guy who is a Roman military leader, he had built the people in his community a temple. Romans, when they weren't conquering new territory, were very good builders. They used to build uh, viaducts and uh, roads and temples and things like that. So he built them uh, a synagogue, a, temp- a, a little temple. He also kept order in the area. He loved the nation of Israel, and now he wants to do all he can for his servant, whom he deeply respects. So, pretty amazing. Let's read it from verse 1. When I can find it. There we go. Man, chapter 6 is long. There it is. Okay. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At the time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal the slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and has built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under authority. Sorry, I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this... They do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. I love verse 9. When 
Jesus heard this man's mindset. He was amazed. How many of you know that it is, impossible, it is possible to amaze Jesus with your faith? Do you like that idea? How many of you want to do that? How many of you want Jesus to nudge his Father and call over the Holy Spirit and say, Look, look at this one. Look at her faith. Amazing. I want to stop Jesus in his tracks with my faith so that he can marvel and celebrate the fact that I've finally got it and that I trust him like this centurion did. If that's you too, just keep listening. This centurion understood something about what it was to be under tremendous authority and how to use authority to get things done. If you want to know how this centurion found it so easy to rely on the authority of Jesus, we need to understand a few things about centurions. Firstly, where, where they were in the structure of a legion. Here you go, I've got a little history lesson here. This is the Roman legion. So a Roman legion was roughly 5,500 soldiers. This was a terrifying military force. And this is how it was laid out. It was laid out in 10 cohorts. A cohort uh, was made up of six sentries. And a sentry was roughly 80 soldiers. It used to be 100, but by this point in history, it was roughly 80 soldiers per sentry. So in charge of each of those sentries was a centurion. Make sense? And in charge of each of the cohort, there would be a supreme centurion. So a, a kind of ruler amongst them. So our centurion is leading one small amount. Like, you see the, the symbol of eight at the bottom there? Eight soldiers. One tiny amount of that massive Roman legion. So he is a man who is down amongst the troops. He's not sat on some horse like a general up on the hill looking down at the battle giving orders. He is right down with the people on the front line. He is one of the people that receives orders from above and makes sure that they are done. The buck kind of stops with him. All right? These are key people. So in the structure of command, you've got uh, Caesar and then you've got the generals, you've got camp prefects, you've got six military tribunes, then you've got these 60 centurions, including these 10 macro centurions, or supreme centurions, who led the cohort of their six centuries. So these guys were probably, uh, these, these super centurions, uh, these supreme ones, the macro ones, were probably in their late 40s or 50s. These were hardened war dogs who knew exactly what they were doing and everybody feared them. Are you with me? And then the centurions, the, they, were, um, they were feared. They were revered. The whole legion of soldiers did whatever the centurions told them to do. And they are, so they are key order receivers and they are key order givers. They are the backbone of the Roman legion, responsible for the unprecedented military success of the empire by causing the whole legion to move as one unit. And so to qualify as a centurion, you have to have years of fighting experience. You had to be over 30 and have proven your mettle on the battlefield. You had to have, have had proven devotion to Caesar 
And every Roman centurion had to be drilled and trained to fight to the last man upon a direct order and never, ever, 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 ever back down. Not under any circumstances. And I want to say, no wonder these people are interesting to God. These people knew how to take a stand. Ephesians 6 verse 10 said, says this, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against the enemy's strategies. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, and the body armor of God's righteousness, etc., etc. God is people who looking for people who are prepared to take a stand upon his word. That when they receive word from above, just like a Roman centurion, they don't question it. They don't uh, deliberate about it. They don't see how they feel about it. They don't work out whether that's what I can be bothered to do today or not. But they take a stand on the word of God. They know who they are, and they don't care what comes against them. They're not moving. I'm staying here because this is what Jesus said to do. God is looking for people who don't get moved around just by feelings and fashionable culture. But we are following the word of God. People who can say, I don't have to feel like it. I don't have to like it. I don't even have to fully understand it. But if God said it, I believe it, that settles it, I will wait till it comes to pass. Amen? Amen. Centurions lived like that. They also led from the front. Do you know why the centurions had the big red crest thing? You, know, you see the big centurion's helmet, the big, uh, it was all different colors. The reason why they wore that crest is because their soldiers needed to see where they were. So again, rather than being up on the hill shouting orders, they were down right at the very front line. And because they were always advancing forward, the rest of the legionaries knew exactly which direction that they should be pushing. They needed to be getting their hands dirty. Are you building a picture about what this man is like? The centurion's task was twofold. Number one, to keep discipline and the condition of the soldiers under them. So they carried a whip as well as a sword because they were to scourge any soldier that was either substandard or would retreat in any way from battle. So they, they feared this man's whip. They could also execute any soldier who turned back in the face of the enemy. And they said that, it's been said that this was the success of the Roman army. Every soldier on that battlefield feared their centurion more than they feared the enemy. So they kept moving forward. So that was the first thing, to keep order and condition of their men. Second thing was to follow orders to the letter. Centurions had to be literate, unlike most of the soldiers in the Roman army. They had to be able to read and understand orders, to interpret them accurately, and to execute them with ruthless efficiency. Can I say that a lot of Christians are not nearly spiritually literate enough? In order to be able to follow a word 
from above. You have to be able to understand the word. You have to be able to hear the voice of God. You have to be able to tune in to the words of Jesus. So I'm preaching to myself at the same time as I'm preaching to everybody in this room. But I believe that it's time for the church to be more spiritually literate. We looked at it last week. Can we hear the voice of God? We all have the, the ability to hear and the right to hear God's voice. We're all prophetic people. God has given us this spiritual gift of communion with himself, and we can hear him if we want to. It's either that or the word of God is a liar. I'm going to stand on that one. I'm going to trust that I can, in any given moment, hear God's voice if I need to. The problem is that we need to learn how to listen, to tune in so that we can hear. Like learning any language, it takes commitment to become literate in it. We need to learn how to wait upon God until we've heard his word in a way that brings conviction and confidence that we have heard him and in a way that we begin to carry his authority to call situations into obedience to the kingdom of God. Amen? So if you don't feel you hear God's word very well, if you don't feel like this Bible that is on your knees speaks to you, or you don't feel like you hear him very well prophetically, I want to encourage you to set yourself apart and to listen, to learn to listen to God. Give yourself some time away. Give yourself somewhere that you can go and you say, just say, I'm not leaving until I've heard something from you, God. Open my ears, and it is your divine right to hear the voice of God. I'm not going to accept anything else. And every time I've done that in my life, where I've needed to hear God's voice, sometimes, you know, you have to wrestle for a little while. Sometimes there's all sorts of other voices and noises and your own ambitions and everything that comes in and swells around you, struggling to hear God's voice because of the background noise. But do you know what? If you are really serious about hearing God's voice, he will speak to you every single time. And he will show you what it is that he wants you to do. And when you hear God's voice, it, something in you changes. You can approach life in a completely different way. We must learn to hear the commands of the Lord and to walk in authority as we hear his word and speak it so that things happen. So when a centurion was given a task to fulfill, their superiors could understand that it was as good as done. Nothing would be allowed to stand in their way. They could walk with total confidence. So this centurion in Luke 7 knows something about the power of a command. He saw something in Jesus that was very familiar to him. When Jesus spoke, things happened immediately. He recognized that somehow all of life was under this man's command. When he spoke, bodies responded obediently with healing. Winds died to a whisper. Evil spirits begged for mercy. There was an unmistakable authority in Jesus that this man recognized. Somehow these stories had of this miracle-working rabbi had reached him, and he understood that this man was a man under some great authority, some great power that he had been given authority to enforce. And the will of God was being enforced all around him on the earth. So when this centurion looks at his dying friend, he knows that Caesar can't help him. He knows that no amount of wealth can buy this guy back. He knows that no doctor can reach him from being this far gone. He's dying. He's on his last legs. And so he looks around to where the authority lies to do something about this situation. And he understands that Jesus is the only place he can go. He goes to find the one who has clear and demonstrated power over life and death. He knows all that Jesus needs to do is to give the order. 
to say the word, and he will, and this servant of his will respond. Interestingly, when this centurion sends a message to Jesus, he addresses Jesus as Lord. Read verse 6. So Jesus went with them, but before they arrived at the house, the officer sent, sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Lord, that word is curios. It means supreme one, ruler over all, one who has dominion and power over all. What do you think his superiors would have thought about him addressing Jesus in that way? That was a pretty serious thing to say. It's treason from a Roman army perspective, a capital offense. Talk about not caring about what people think and standing on what you believe. It's the absolute opposite of the response of the Pharisees who were trying to maneuver and keep you know, in favor with everybody. He just stood up for what he believed. There's tremendous respect for Jesus. I'm not worthy for you to even come into my home. And to be fair, it's not necessary. Does Caesar have to leave Rome, travel across the known world, and land at this man's house to tell him to do something? No, he sends word, and that's as good as done. And so he's saying the same to Jesus. You don't, eat, you don't have to come into my house. Just speak the word. That's all I need to know that you've done. And I know my servant will be well. And he says something really interesting. He says, I too am a man set under authority. I'm set into a major position in the Roman legion that is so significant that when I receive an order and I pass it on, I know it will be obeyed exactly. I see that you somehow are under some authority, some power that is so mighty that even though I don't understand it, I can see that when you speak, the entire spiritual realm and natural realm are subject to your words. Just speak the word and it will be done. And the scriptures are clear. The centurion had his friend restored the very hour that Jesus heard his, his message, marveled at his faith, and said the word. This man is rewarded for putting his full trust in the authority of the words of Jesus. He claimed his miracle by taking a bold stand of faith. And I want to see more of that. I want to learn how to do that. I want to learn how to take bold steps of faith. You and I are even more privileged than this centurion was. The Bible says, For he has raised us up from the dead, along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. So now Jesus has opened the way to the Father and raised us up to be sons and daughters of God. We're not just invited to trust in his authority, but we are invited to share in it, to seat with him in the place of authority. Seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. To be seated with Christ means to be ruling with Christ. We have a seat at the table of kingdom authority with our name on it. I can't quite get my head around that, but I want to. Do you? Want to know what it is to sit in the council of God, hear the word of the Father, and to be able to take it away in such a way that I can enforce it. Because it is the word of God, and when I speak, I know things are going to shift. I've experienced some. I'm hungry for more. We are united with our commanding officer and we can expect that we can pass on his words and things are going to happen. Freedom is going to come. Healing is going to come. Even nature will respond because everything in heaven and earth recognizes his authority when it's seen. If we're not seeing the kingdom of God affecting life as much as this says we should be, I want to put it to us that it could be because we've forgotten our job like a retired centurion who no longer feels the responsibility to act upon orders, 
could be that. It could be that we're not literate enough. We're not hearing the word in the first place. We're, not, we're like a centurion who has been stationed in a remote part of the empire and never receives orders to do anything and just tinkers around with a bit of building and loses interest in the glory of Rome. Do you want to be like that? I don't want to live like that. I believe it's time to get thoroughly dissatisfied with tinkering around with a wordless, powerless Christianity. Let's say we've had enough, if that's how we feel. I believe there is help from the Holy Spirit to work amongst us right now, in this year. This is part of the face that God wants us to develop, for us to grow in this authority of the kingdom that we're talking about. And as a result, we're going to see the kingdom brought to bear with great blessing and power. He is the king, the supreme one, the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered the world. And we, united with him and under his word, can represent him in all kinds of situations. Let's get our lion faces on. Let's see the enemy flee in his name. And let's run after this together. Amen? Let's pray. And then I'm going to hand over to Matt and we're going to share communion together. And I wonder if maybe there's a hunger in you today that says, I need this living relationship with the King of Kings, with the Lion of Judah. And I'm ready to stand on his word in a fresh way or begin to trust him for who he is for the very first time. I don't know whether we have had enough of powerless Christianity or whether we just feel a pull to this for the very first time to understand this God who speaks and things move. But Father, we are all coming together from wherever we are to say, Lord, would you please lead us into greater revelation of our authority in you. Open our ears, Lord. Reveal your power and majesty again. Help us to understand our authority as we agree with you on a daily basis. And help us to speak your word with a fresh authority and anointing that we may see your will done in great power by the end of this year. In Jesus' name, amen.